0: Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for a time of song and prayer, Lord, and a time just to focus on And to think about you and and your truths. I pray, Father, we would continue our spirit of worship into the time of study, Lord, as we open the text of the truth of the Word of God, Lord. I pray you would speak to us, Lord. Father, speak beyond my words and my failures and my inabilities, oftentimes, Lord, to say the things that maybe you want to say, Lord. And you speak to the hearts of these people. Father, give me the things you would have me to say for your honor and for your glory, Lord. And then I pray that we would take the truths of this text, apply it to our lives, be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to delve right in this morning. i got a lot I want to cover. And there's an awful lot of, as we would say, meat in this text. And so we're going to delve right into Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be focused on verses 19 through 25. But I'm going to basically kind of catch you up to speed in the first 18 verses. This is... The sixth week in our sermon series on worship. We've been talking for the last five weeks about the importance of worshiping the Lord and what worship looks like and how we ought to worship and how we can grow in our walk with Christ and the importance of giving ourselves in a time of worship. And so this morning, we're going to answer a simple question. We've been talking about what worship is, how important worship is, how worship is outside of the church and inside of the church. And this morning, I want to answer this question How can we experience true worship? How can we experience true worship? And so we're going to begin this morning in Hebrews chapter 10. Again, we'll focus on verses 19 through 25. But I'm going to read to you beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 10. And let me give you just a little bit of background about the book of Hebrews before we delve into this. Hebrews is a a kind of a complex book theologically. There's an awful lot of doctrine And it's very difficult sometimes to sum up an entire book in a few sentences. But one of the things we see in Hebrews over and over and over over again is the superiority of Christ. And we see in Hebrews that Christ has become this bridge for us from the Old Testament and the sacrificial system into the New Covenant because of His death, burial, and resurrection. And we're going to see in this text that in the Old Testament it was impossible for the Jewish person to enter into the presence of the Lord. It just didn't happen. Because of who Christ is, because of what Christ accomplished, we have a bridge now in which we can enter into the presence of the Lord and worship. And so beginning in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 this morning, we're going to be looking at Old Testament. It says, the law, it's speaking of the Old Testament is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it, speaking of the law, can never, by the same sacrifices repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. In other words, the sacrifices of the Old Testament weren't enough. The sacrifices made in the Old Testament weren't enough to make people perfect as they draw near to worship. Now verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's, It's interesting to note that these sacrifices simply reminded the people of their need for cleansing. See, the Old Testament sacrificial system ultimately is going to point us to Christ. Because these sacrifices in and of themselves can't cleanse them. And instead, in verse 3, we see that they're a reminder of their sins. Now, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, those are the sacrifices, to take away sins. In other words, something else is necessary. Now, verse 5, therefore... When Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You were not pleased, speaking to the Lord. In other words, Lord, you weren't happy with these offerings. They weren't enough. Verse 7. Then I said, this is Christ speaking, here I am. Right? The sacrifices of the Old Testament weren't enough. So Christ says in verse 7, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Now skip down to verse 10. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all. See, Christ becomes that living sacrifice. That's why, and this is, we don't have time to delve into it at this very moment, but that's why it was so important for Christ to live a sinless life. See, when Christ lived a sinless life, he took the place of those Old Testament sacrifices that were without spot and without blemish. Now verse 11, so day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, speaking of Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool for, this is verse 14, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now let's stop there for a second. Let's do as my son says, you know, these kids that grow up in a video game age, we're outside playing a game. He doesn't say timeout anymore, Dad. He says pause. We don't call timeouts anymore. We pause the game. So let's pause there for just a second after verse 14. And let's make sure we understand where we've been. There's a lot of stuff in these first few verses. Now, the Old Testament is a picture of the sacrifice that the Jewish people would make, the sacrifices they would make with the bulls and the goats and the lambs, and they would bring them to the altar. They would sacrifice on a regular basis for the atonement of their sins. The problem was, as we see in Scripture, that wasn't enough. And so the Bible tells us we needed something more, right? It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so Christ enters the picture in verse 7, and He says, Here I am, right? I'm willing, Father in heaven, to do your will. I'm willing, Father in heaven, to come to earth, live a sinless life, to die on the cross, and become that perfect sacrifice. But see, as we think about the Old Testament people and the Jewish people, and we understand the the ritual of sacrifice, I need to give you a little bit of background to help you understand. See, for the Jewish people, the idea of entering into the presence of God was unheard of for them. It was not anything they could accomplish. Because you may remember the stories of the Old Testament when they built, first of all, the tabernacle in the desert, and then eventually the temple, and then, of course, the second temple. Within the tabernacle and within each of the temples, they built the Holy of Holies. Now, the Holy of Holies was the innermost part of the sanctuary, it was where the Ark of the Covenant stayed, it's where the Jewish people understood God Himself to reside. And so once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would cleanse himself, he would sacrifice and give an altar, a sacrifice on the altar to atone for the sins of the people. That's kind of what they did every year. But the regular Jewish person, the regular believer, the regular worshiper could not enter into the Holy of Holies. Now let's fast forward a few thousand years to Christ. Christ comes, he lives a sinless life, he's the ultimate sacrifice. He dies on the cross, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 50. I want you to listen to what Jesus says. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So he dies, now Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. At that moment, I listen to this, <clears throat> the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now what you need to understand is that the Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the tabernacle with this huge curtain and you couldn't see it, you couldn't enter it. It was a barrier that would keep the Jewish man and woman from entering into the Holy of Holies. Only the priest could do that. When Christ is crucified, at that moment, the Bible says, the curtain of the temple, that's what separates the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. So here's the point of these first few verses. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and the veil was torn in two, he made it for the first time ever, possible for the believer to enter into the presence of the Lord. That's awfully important for us to understand. You study Old Testament, you see the people and they see the cloud, and they're fearful. they don't go near the cloud. The cloud descends on Mount Sinai, they don't go near the cloud. The fire rains and they don't go near the fire. Only Moses can go. Only the people that the Lord calls can go. The other people can't enter into the presence of the Lord. When Christ gives His life on the cross, the Bible tells us that the curtain temple was torn in two and it gives us the right for the first time ever to enter into the presence of the Lord. Now fast forward to where we are in this age and in this culture. Because of who Christ is, because of what Christ has accomplished, we can experience true worship by entering into the presence of the Lord, right? What we do when we worship now is vastly different from what Jewish people did in the Old Testament. It's a different model, it's a different picture, it's a different covenant, and it changed simply because of what Christ accomplished. Now, let's look at verse 19. I feel like you've been in a seminary class for a few minutes. That's okay. Bear with me. Hebrews chapter 10, now beginning in verse 19. Therefore, right, because of all that Christ has done for us, because of what Christ gave, because of what Christ accomplished, because the veil in the temple has been torn in two, and now we can freely enter into the presence of the Lord and experience true worship. Therefore, in verse 19, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place or the holy of holies or into the relationship or into the presence of God, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, right? it's because of what Christ accomplished, now verse 20, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain. That is his body. Again, it's a picture of Christ. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, now we're going to get some very clear direction. Because of what Christ has done, because of the sacrifice He's made, because the veil has been torn in two, because we can now enter freely into the presence of the Lord in worship, now, verse 22, we're going to be given three let us statements. In other words, let us do these things. Because of what the Lord has done, because of Christ, because of what He's accomplished, beginning verse 22, let us, here's the first one, draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now verse 23, here's the second one. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Now verse 24, here's the third one. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day Approaching. Now we're going to divide this text into three main ideas based on these let us statements. So the question we asked at the beginning of this sermon was very simply this. How can we experience true worship based on all that Christ has done for us and based on all that Christ has given us? And there are three truths I want to pull out this morning that I want you to understand and apply to your lives. Here's the first one. To experience true worship, number one, we must grow in our walk with the Lord. If we're going to experience true worship, we need to grow in our walk with the Lord. In other words, there's this ongoing process in our lives that ought to be taking place if we really expect to be able to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. If we really expect to be able to experience the Lord in His power and His majesty and His greatness during worship. If we really expect to experience true worship, we ought to be growing on a regular basis in our walk with Christ. Now as we study the Old Testament, the phrase that's used here in verse 22 is that we should draw near to God. Now this is a picture of the Old Testament. You may remember, as I said just a few minutes ago, that for the believer in the Old Testament, for the Jewish person, the idea of drawing near to God was an impossibility. So we look at the context of the Old Testament, we look at the temple, we look at the Holy of Holies, and we recognize that for those people at that time, there was a very physical location in which they could enter. They could literally enter into, if you were the high priest, into the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God. But we fast forward a few thousand years, there's not a physical place that we go to enter into the presence of the Lord, right? Now we may have a prayer closet or a place that we've kind of set aside personally that we go to and spend time in prayer, and we may feel like at that moment that the Lord speaks to us, but we understand there's no one place that we go. So we need to begin to understand this idea of drawing near to God. And so I would say to you as we think through this, Text in verse twenty-two. In this phrase, "draw near to God," I would suggest to you that in our context and our culture, it would mean something a little bit different. Maybe more like we should deepen our walk with the Lord, or we should try to experience Him on a, on a more profound basis, or we should try to study more, we should try to spend more time in prayer, we should basically deepen our walk and our faith and our trust and our understanding of the Lord. Now, this phrase "let us draw near to God" is found in several different places in the Book of Hebrews. So for example, Hebrews 4.16 says this, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives and makes intercession for them. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10 say this: submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and flee from him. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And so we read all these scripture passages. We've seen this in the text this morning. We've seen it in other instances in Hebrews. We've seen it in other places in the New Testament. We should draw near to God, but we begin to ask ourselves the question, if there's not a physical location for us to go to, if there's not a physical area for us to draw near to God, then how are we supposed to draw near to Him? It's interesting, if you ask that question kind of across the board to people in different parts of our world, maybe if you could, people in different parts of history, you'd get an awful lot of different answers because people for centuries have been trying to find the Lord, haven't they? And everybody's got a different idea. You can ask one person how they think you should understand the lord and how you can draw near the lord and maybe eventually get into heaven and you get a totally different answer than if you ask somebody different i'll, I'll never forget when we used to go on faith visits. some of you guys have done this and been there with us you walk into a person's house and you, you begin to share christ with this person and you you ask them the key faith question which is simply how do you understand or what do you understand it takes for a person to go to heaven right what, what does it mean to go to heaven explain that to me You'd be amazed at the number of people that give an answer something like this. They'll say, well, you know, I I think if I just do enough good stuff, if I just have enough good deeds, right? I'm hoping that one day when I get to heaven, the Lord will look down and He'll see that I was kind and compassionate and treated people well. And it's almost, I don't say this, but it's almost like this scale, right? I've got good deeds over here, bad deeds over here, and so I'm weighing this good deed thing full, right? I'm weighing it full, so hopefully when I get there, there's enough good deeds and the Lord will say, you know, you've done enough good stuff. You've checked off enough boxes. You've been kind enough to people. I'm going to allow you into heaven. That's not what the Scripture teaches. There are other people that would say something like this. You know, I can, I can find God. I can draw near to God when I go into nature. I can be alone in the wilderness. I can, I can be alone in the desert. I can be alone in certain areas of my backyard or maybe my pasture or some other area. And I can be alone in those areas. And I can be with the Lord there. And that's probably true. But that's not the way, scripturally, that we're going to draw near to the Lord. There are other people that say something like this, various different religions. There are all sorts of different paths to God. And kind of the trendy thing to say now is it's not really what you believe, it's that you're sincere in what you believe. Have you heard that? It doesn't really matter what you believe. That's not as important as your level of sincerity. So as long as you mean what you say, as long as it's true in your heart, then you're one day going to go to heaven. I'll never forget I had a conversation in college with a young lady. who was in one of my classes. And after class we started talking a little bit and, and we got into kind of a religious discussion and I was sharing my faith with her and she was sharing her faith with me and it turns out she worshipped the moon god. I never That's what I said. I'd never heard that before. I didn't know exactly what that meant. She proceeded to tell me this long, very interesting story about the moon god and how this was an important deity in her life. We had this very interesting conversation. she kind of ended it like this. She said, you know, I, that's important to me, but I kind of believe really it's not so much what you believe. It's that you just are sincere in your belief, Right. And one day I'm going to get to heaven. Now those are all interesting discussions, but the Scripture tells us, and Hebrews tells us, that there's only one way we're going to draw near to Christ. It's through the blood. There's only one way we're going to draw near to God the Father. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ, right? There's only one way we can come into the presence of the Lord. That's through Christ. When Christ gave His life on the cross, the veil was torn, the curtain was torn. It gave us the ability to enter into the presence of the Lord. Some of you are familiar With John chapter 14 verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. But now here's what some of us do. We say, well, I know that truth. I know that because of what Christ accomplished, I can worship. I know because of what Christ accomplished, I can grow in my walk. I know because of what Christ accomplished, I can come into the presence of the Lord. But I just don't feel like I'm growing, right? I just don't think I'm growing. I kind of doubt a little bit that I'm able to actually do this. I kind of doubt that I'm really going to be able to grow in my walk with Christ and experience true worship. Well, here's what you need to understand. Your feelings may say one thing, but the truth of the Word of God says something else. Because it's not really about how you feel, and it's not about your own ability, and it's not about your strength. The Bible tells us that we have assurance that we can enter into the presence of the Lord simply because of the blood of Christ. So you need to remind yourself the next time you don't think you can grow, you're not sure you can experience worship, that you can because of Christ, not because of you. It's all about the Lord here. I want to read for you a quote from a scholar thinking about and speaking about worshiping and entering into the presence of the Lord. And here's what he said. So the blood of Christ so completely covers our sins and removes our guilt that the conscience can rest at peace. Not because we are sinless, and not because the conscience doesn't accuse us, but because when it does, we by faith speak to it and say, I know I have sinned. It grieves me. I hate my sin, but I have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who shed his priceless blood for me to bear my sins and to cover my transgressions. Therefore, be silent, O conscience. Be at peace in Jesus, and because that is true, let us draw near. This is the zeal for nearness to God that is according to the truth. See, we we need to set aside our concerns and our fears that we can't really grow, and we need to hold to the truth of the Word of God, that because of Christ, we can experience Him. Because of Christ, we can come into the presence of the Lord. Because of Christ, we can experience true worship. And when we begin to understand that, Our prayer time becomes more effective, right? Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. Our study of the Bible becomes more important to us, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. Our worship becomes more fulfilling and more joyful, not because we think we can accomplish anything, but we recognize because of who Christ is and because of what Christ accomplished, we can now draw near to God. Now verse 23, let's continue to walk through this. Here's the second let us phrase. Verse 23, Hebrews chapter 10, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Here's the second truth. To experience true worship, we must live our lives for God's glory. To experience true worship, we must live our lives for God's glory. Now there's an interesting phrase here in verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly is what the NIV says. A lot of translations say something like this. We need to hold fast We need to adhere to, we need to stick to, it needs to bind us. So the idea basically is we need to stick to the things that we profess or the things that we say. In other words, if you say it, you ought to mean it, right? Don't say one thing and do something different. See, I think the way that we can actually show that this is binding and we're holding fast or we're holding unswervingly is by living it in our lives, right? It's very easy for us to say that we're believers, it's very easy to call ourselves Christians, to talk about the importance of Christ in our life, and yet to live our lives in a way that doesn't honor the Lord. I think so many people fall into that trap. We had the opportunity, Amy and I did, when we were first married, to go to San Diego, California. We did some mission work in San Diego. And San Diego is an awfully nice city if you've ever been. The weather is beautiful. But there's a real need for the gospel there, as there is in so many other very large cities. And so we. Partnered with a local church there in San Diego and we did some outreach. We did a lot of door-to-door evangelism. That's very interesting in California. If you've ever done door-to-door evangelism in California, you can imagine if you haven't done it. It's a very difficult thing to do. We did some backyard Bible clubs to some of the local kids. We did a couple of VBS times at that local church and another local church. We had a really neat mission experience there. But while we were there, we had a little time towards the end to do a little sightseeing. And so we were taken with our team to Tijuana, Mexico. Anybody ever been to Tijuana, Mexico in here? A couple of you, a few of you? is a different place if you've never been. Okay, it is in a different country, of course, we understand that. But it's just a different sort of a world down there. It's a very touristy area where we were, so we were walking through. And the phrase at that moment, I don't know what it is now, but every time you walk by a vendor, their phrase to you was in English, cheaper than Kmart, that's what they told us. Cheaper than Kmart, cheaper than Kmart. Well, Kmart is gone now, at least for the most part. I'm not sure what they say anymore. But we walked along these little street corners and walked in these little places and bought little trinkets and souvenirs. But it seemed like on every street corner there was this photo op, and it usually went something like this: there were these three guys standing there with their kind of their 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 I guess traditional Mexican attire on the sombreros, and they're standing there. And right next to them is a zebra. And the point of this is, you could come get your picture taken with a zebra. And so the zebra was always hooked up to like this little cart, you know, almost like a wagon. And they had the little hats. You could put on the hats if you wanted to. So you and your group hop up in this cart and they, they take your picture with the zebra, right? Very interesting little photo. The funny thing about the whole deal is, it's not really a zebra, it's a donkey that they had painted with stripes. Now, I'm not a farmer. But it didn't take me real long to recognize, I don't think that's a zebra. (laughs) In fact, it looks an awful lot like a donkey to me, right? It's got the big ears, and it's just a donkey, and they've just simply painted it. When you get close, you begin to notice some of the stripes are a little faded, right? They're not quite as straight as some of the other stripes. And we saw it and we laughed and that was a funny, it was more funny to us actually that it wasn't really a zebra. So we got up and we took our picture and we brought it home. It was a funny thing to show people. But I, I think about that example here because I wonder how many believers are painted up to look like one thing. When in reality they're really not that. I wonder how many of us come to church and we kind of put on the church paint, whatever that looks like for us. The Christianity paint. We act in a certain way. We want people to think that we're a follower of Christ. We want to let people think that we're... Deep in our faith and we're a strong believer and yet we're living our lives in a way that doesn't honor Christ. I wonder how many of us kind of, kind of put on the airs, so to speak, and we say all the right things. and We may attend the right meetings and we may know the right people and make the right comments. But we know in our hearts that we're not really living for the Lord. I wonder how many of us claim to be one thing and yet we do something entirely different. This scripture tells us we need to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. In other words, if you're going to profess it, you need to hold to it. If you want to experience true worship, you need to say the right things, but you need to do the right things. Don't say one thing and do another and then wonder why your worship is flat and not joyous. Don't say one thing and then do another and wonder why you don't experience this peace that you want to experience in the Lord. Don't say one thing and do another and then wonder why you just don't sense this growth or you don't sense this presence from the Lord in your life. The text teaches us very clearly. You need to say the right things but you need to hold to those things that you profess. I had an opportunity this week. I was doing some research for this sermon. And I was just thinking about the needs of the world. And the needs of people in darkness and in oppression. And, and I, I went to a website that I frequent. It's called persecution.com. If you've never been, you ought to go. It's put on by Voice of the Martyrs. And Voice of the Martyrs is basically a group that kind of chronicles and keeps tabs on believers all over the world that are being persecuted on all sorts of levels. And I read this article, and I want to read you just a portion. I want to kind of remind you of where we are in the world. This is from persecution.com. It says, A member of Afghanistan's parliament, now this is an official in the government in the country of Afghanistan, has suggested that anyone who converts from Islam to Christianity should be executed in order to stop the rapid growth of Christianity among Afghans. The declaration is the latest in a series of anti-Christian statements by the Afghan public officials. An Afghan news service quoted Mr. Hanafi, who's the man that made this, as saying, "...numerous Afghans have become Christians in India. This is an offense to Islamic laws, and according to the Quran, they need to be executed." An Afghan pastor in India said the number of Christian converts in Afghanistan began to grow as the United States' presence increased after the fall of the Taliban in late 2001. As the region stabilized, Christian converts from Islam began fleeing Afghanistan in 2005, fearful of a Muslim-ruled government and society. And in May of 2009, after a Kabul-based TV station aired video showing the faces of converts at a secret Afghan church, About a hundred Christian converts fled India. In 2010, a member of the parliament called for the execution of Christians. The Afghans who appear in this video should be publicly executed, he said. The House should order the Attorney General and the National Directorate of Security to arrest these Afghans and to execute them. Now I read this, folks, and it feels like I'm watching a movie. It feels like I'm reading a fictional book, doesn't it? It doesn't seem like the real world, but here's what we need to understand. This is very real in the world that we live in. There are believers right now at this very second being persecuted for their beliefs. There are people in remote parts of our world right now that are being murdered simply because they are believers. And I think we're awfully naive if we think that persecution is always going to stay away from us. Because in the history of Christianity, the idea of living free without persecution as a believer is unheard of. You need to understand that. It's unheard of in our world today even. And so as we take a look at what's really going on and even the struggles in America and how it seems like Christianity is becoming under more and more persecution here in our country and even in our midst and our culture, we need to understand something. What the world does not need now are believers that claim to follow Jesus Christ and don't live for His glory. That's not what the world needs. These people dying in the darkness, these people that have never heard the name Jesus Christ, these people that are being persecuted because of their beliefs, they don't need phony Christians. And they don't need a weak Western church that's not willing to support them, do they? And yet I read this text and it says, you know, hold on to what you profess. In other words, do what you say. And I look at so many believers in our world and I think Christianity for them is just a box. It's something they do that makes them feel good about themselves on Sunday morning. The rest of the week, they live the way they want to live. But the problem with that is it's not the truth of the Scripture. It's not what Christ teaches. It's not what's going to ultimately bring you joy and hope and peace. Because this Scripture says we need to hold on to the hope that we profess. That hope is in Christ, isn't it? Because we can read these accounts all we want and we can be upset about them and we can cry about them and we can pray about them. We know in our own power we have nothing we can do there, right? Their only hope is in Christ. These millions of people in the world that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ, we're just one church, we're one person, we can go and do as much as we can. but We know the big picture for us, there's nothing we can do, but there's hope in Christ in there. And I bring this a little closer to home. You may say, I've got this situation at work, and I just don't think there's anything I can do. There's nothing that can be fixed, but you need to understand, there's hope in Christ. For those that are sitting in this room right now and hear my voice, whose marriage is struggling, whose marriage is on the rocks, you may not have the power to fix it, but there's hope in Christ. For those people that have children or grandchildren that have gone astray and they struggle and they pray for that child, they pray for that grandchild, you don't have any power of your own to fix it, but there's hope in Christ. See, we need to understand this hope and we need to live our lives in such a way that God receives glory. When we do that... We're going to experience Him in a profound way. We're going to truly worship Him. Now, let's continue. We need to finish on up this morning. Verse 24 and 25. And let us. Here's the third and let us phrase. Because of all that Christ has done, right? Because of all that Christ has accomplished, because of all He's given us, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. As some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Here's the third thing. Here's the third truth this morning. To experience true worship, we must build others up in love. This text in verse 24 says, Consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. I think one of the most important things we can do on Sunday morning is to encourage one another in Christ. You guys understand this. It's very clear in the world that we live in, but it's hard to live in our world sometimes, isn't it? I I could go around this congregation and have you list all your struggles, and they'd probably be a mile long by the time I finished Struggles at home, struggles at work, struggles in, in the past, struggles we know that are coming in the future, all sorts of issues that we deal with, all sorts of struggles that we find ourselves in, in battled with and involved in on a regular basis. We ought to surround ourselves with believers that will help us pray through those and encourage us in love and encourage us to live our lives for the honor of Christ. So if you're not involved in a small group, if you're not involved in a Sunday school, I want to encourage you to be part of a small group. A small group is so important, and I could spend a lot of time talking about the importance of a small group, but one of the reasons it's so important is because you're going to spend time around other believers who are struggling just like you are. Don't think when you walk into that group that everybody's got it figured out. I promise you, they don't. Okay? They're struggling with the same things you're struggling with. You surround yourself with those people, and they love you, and you love them. You spur one another on to good deeds. I remember when Amy and I were first married, Sunday school class was awfully important to us. We spent time getting to know people and, and building these relationships and these bonds and beginning to love people and they begin to love us and they spur us on to good deeds and they help guide us and they help lead us and they help direct us in the name of Jesus Christ. And I think it's so important as we see this text, as we think about the difficulty of our world and the difficult lives that we live, we need to spur one another on. We need to encourage each other. We need to build each other up. We need to love each other, not tear each other down. We need to look for the good and how the Lord would lead us. But it's interesting to me what the writer does in verse 25 Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good good deeds. Verse 25, Excuse me, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. See that? In other words, one of the places you can spur one another on in love and good deeds is when you gather together as believers. When you gather together as the body of Christ, whether that's in a small group or whether that's in a worship type setting or that's in your home in fellowship or whatever the case may be, We need to gather together and spur one another on in love. Now, there's this alarming trend. I think some of you are familiar with it. And I'm going to step on your toes right now, so go ahead and get ready for it. There's an alarming trend in our world where other activities have become more important than church. Now, I think there are an awful lot of good activities in our world. And I'm I'm not against sports. I'm not against dance. I'm not against any of those things. My children are involved in some of those things. But I just I want to encourage you from my heart and from the truth of Scripture. When you begin to put those things ahead of Christ, and when you begin to put those things ahead of worshiping Christ in the context of the body of believers, I think you're missing the truth of Scripture. And I think there's an awfully dangerous precedent for us when we begin to say to our children, to our grandchildren, it's okay to miss church on a regular basis for this event. It's okay to miss Sunday morning for this event. It's okay if church is kind of set aside for a little while because these are things that are more important. I don't think we need to be surprised in future generations when we raise a group of children that are mediocre Christians. I don't think we need to be surprised when that happens. I think that's the direction we're heading. And the Bible tells us very clearly, we shouldn't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So whatever that means for you and your family, you need to spend time worshiping the Lord, whether that's in a small group or corporate worship. You don't need to set that aside. You don't need to get in the habit of missing church. You don't need to get in the habit of being surrounded by other believers that can encourage you and love you on to good deeds. See, we understand the difficulties of of our world, don't we? And my fear is that so many believers kind of walk through life distant from the Lord, never really understanding they can come into His presence never really understanding they can experience true worship. And so my desire for you, my heart's desire for you, is that you would see the Lord for who He truly is. That you would see His majesty and that you would see His power and you would come into His presence and experience joy unheard in your life. Something you've never seen before. I want to finish this morning with a quote from A.W. Tozer who wrote The Pursuit of God and then I'm going to be done. He says this, "Oh God, I have tasted your goodness. What an incredible statement. Don't we wish we could have all said that before? I've tasted your goodness. It's both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire, O God, the triune God. I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me your glory, I pray, so that I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me and say to my soul, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. And then give me the grace to rise and follow you up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. See, I think if we seek the Lord, I think if we spend time trying to understand who He is, trying to enter into His presence, I think we're going to deepen our walk with Him. And I think when we do that, we're going to experience true worship. And that's my prayer for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study the truth of your word. It is truth. And it may hurt our feelings, Lord. It may convict us. It may cause us to notice things about our lives that don't make us happy, Father. But help us to see it as truth. Help us to set aside our emotions. Father, based on the truth of Scripture, it's not really about what we feel always. Although emotions are important, Lord, we know that you've given them to us and we should use them. When our emotions are in conflict with the truth of the Word of God, Father, help us to set our emotions aside and focus on you. So, Lord, you give us the ability to worship you. You give us the ability, Father, to, to live our lives, to bring you honor and glory, Father. You give us the, uh, the ability to come into your presence with assurance and with confidence, knowing, Lord, what Christ accomplished for us. Lord, you give us the ability to spur one another on in love. To not put aside the importance of worship, Lord. Not put aside the importance of spending time together with other believers. And then, Father, you use us in a mighty and profound way for your honor and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you the opportunity for the next couple of minutes. If you want to come and pray at the altar, you can do that. If you want to repent of your sins and accept Christ, if you want to join this church, this is your time now as we sing together.